Next on Commodity Watch Radio, the Farber interview continues. Now, let me ask you briefly about uh, the, the, the mining industry. Are you bullish about the sector generally? Yes, as I said, I'm positive about especially gold. The industrial commodities like nickel, copper and tin, lead, zinc, they of course depend very much on industrial production in the world and if you assume that the global economy will slow down, then obviously the demand for these commodities will also come off at some point. But uh, I don't see ever again in our lifetime oil at $12 a barrel and copper at 60 cents per pound. It just won't happen anymore because the demand from China may slow down, but it won't go away entirely. And it won't decline because the per capita consumption in countries like China, India, Vietnam is still extremely low. So in the long run, I'm actually quite positive for all commodity prices, especially given the fact that we have Mr. Bernanke. Do you think some sort of resource war, even if it's by proxies, is possible between, say, the United States and China? Well, we economies, we have business cycle series and there are lots of series why the economy expands and goes into an excursion of prosperity and why it then contracts and goes into an uh, excursion of depression. And uh, the historians, uh, they have war cycle series and there are many different series about war cycles. There's a theory about hegemony in the world. If you have a superpower and another economy grows much faster and becomes important, like, say, Germany at the end of the 19th century was growing much more rapidly than Britain and overtook the British economy in 1910. And so it led to tensions between Britain and Germany. It was very clear. And uh, today we have increasing tensions between China and the United States. The other theory has to do with generation cycles and another theory has to do with commodity prices. If you have a period of declining commodity prices, declining commodity prices are a symptom of glutted markets, so countries get sufficient supplies of oil and copper and iron ore and so forth so it eases tensions, and i just like to point out, 1980 to 2001, we have the breakdown of the Soviet Union in 1988-89, and unlike what the Americans think that they won the Cold War, the fact is simply the Soviet Union collapsed when the oil price collapsed, and the Russian crisis of 98 occurred after the oil price collapsed between 96 and 98. Now, it's interesting how, how much more powerful Russia is now. Than well, that, that is that point. You know, the, since 2001, commodity prices have gone up. So whereas between 1980 to 2001, the balance of power in the world shifts to the industrialized countries of the West, notably the U.S., as commodity prices rise, the balance of power shifts to characters like Evo Morales and Hugo Chavez and Mr. Ahmadinejad and Mr. Putin. And Mr. Putin, we have to see it very clearly, is the most powerful man in the world today, not Mr. Bush. Because Mr. Putin controls the supply of 10 million barrels of oil a day on a world market of 84 million barrels. Actually, if he was a hedge fund manager, he should cut production tomorrow by 50%. The price would go through the roof. 
and he would still have the oil in the ground. Why doesn't he do that? Well, I think now the Americans, you have to see one thing. There's no foreign policy that is as stupid and incompetent as the U.S. foreign policy. <laughs> First of all, they remove a Sunni, Mr. Saddam Hussein, and now they want to fight the Shiites in both Iraq and in Iran. The, the only man who could have done it and did it, it was actually Saddam Hussein. Then they removed the Taliban's, but the Taliban's hated also the Iranians. And uh, the U.S., in their foreign policy, they have now managed to achieve something that nobody ever has managed to do in history, and this is to unite the Chinese and the Russians. Because obviously they are very close and have common interest in Central Asia, and the Chinese can supply the Russians with uh, consumer goods and manufactured goods, and the Russians can supply China with the resources they need. And this nobody has ever achieved. Now, the danger, as I see it, is that the Americans, as you know, have made a deal to establish uh, missile bases in Poland. Now, put yourself into the shoes of Russia. Do you want to have missile bases next door to you? Do you think the Americans would love to have Russian bases in Mexico, in the Caribbean and in Canada? Well, the Russians, of course, will not accept that. That I'm convinced. And that can lead to a lot of tensions. I'm always saying the financial market is one thing. What can also disturb asset prices and financial markets is an event that comes from the outside that has nothing to do with money supply growth and with Mr. Bernanke. Your book, Tomorrow's Gold, you wrote that in 2001-2002. Yes. Have you got another one due? Not yet. I have to wait until total disaster strikes. <laughs> and how long is that going to be? Well, as I said, I think we are now, you see, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if you increased your debt in the United States by $1, you got essentially also a dollar worth of GDP growth. Now, in the last five years, total credit market debt in the U.S. has grown by $13 trillion per GDP, by just $2.3 trillion. So in other words, debt is growing at about four or five times nominal GDP growth. Mm -hmm. And there is a time when money printing doesn't help anymore. Because you can yourself, with common sense, see it. If money printing made countries rich, then Zimbabwe would now be the richest country in the world, or Latin America would have become the richest continent in the 1980s when they printed money like water. So I think we are reaching a point in the United States where additional debt grows, and by the way, also in the UK, does not generate GDP growth. And certainly doesn't generate GDP growth for the ordinary families. It generates a lot of GDP growth for the Goldman Sachs partners. And I'm not saying that because I'm angry at it. I'm the one that has benefited among the most of the financial bubble because I'm active in the financial field. But I don't think it's healthy for a society that some clowns are active in the financial markets that really don't generate any real wealth increase. Mm -hmm. It's just paper money shufflers from one hand to the other one, but it doesn't create wealth. And I'm afraid that the debt grows now in the US and also the UK, and by the way, also other countries, is not generating GDP growth such as you have in China, India and Vietnam, but is generating 
just speculative excesses, and the average family suffers because inflation for the average family is, of course, fairly high, and a lot of goods or assets become unaffordable. Actually, I tell you, I mean, I've you done very well. Some... I have done very well in the financial field, but I think in 1980, relative to my income and assets, I would have been in a better position to buy, say, a Picasso Warhol or a piece of art than today. It's, I mean, a house in London is unaffordable for a Londoner now. Yes, I think that is a this is a big social issue because you know as the financial sphere and the asset shufflers have become so immensely rich, doctors and engineers that have decent jobs and are not, you know, money swindlers, <laughs> they they now find themselves in a position where they can't afford to have a house in London or in New York. But it's, um, I mean, you're forced... Not to a mention a professor or a teacher. Well, that's even worse. Um, the, but you're forced to kind of you take on a large amount of debt and speculate that the housing but, market will continue to rise. Yeah, but this is precisely the point of easy monetary policies. They lead to huge maladjustments, to bubbles, and to then misery for many people. I mean... One of the arguments in the U.S. is that we haven't got the stock market bubble because we haven't got widespread public participation. To that, I argue, well, the public has lost all its money in the decline in tech stocks and media stocks after 2000, and 2000 because the Nasdaq is still down 50% in U.S. dollar terms. And much more, of course, in euro terms. It's like also CNBC said, the Dow, hurrah, makes a new high. The fact is, in euro terms, the Dow Jones is still 40% below its high, and the S&P down 50% below its high in, uh, in euro terms. And in gold terms, as you know, in the year 2000, you could buy with one Dow Jones industrial average, at that time around 12,000. You could buy 45 ounces of gold, and now you can buy only less than 20. So you tell me, yeah, you print money, paper goes up, but then you know some assets like gold go up more than the others. If if the average standard in, of living in in America or the UK to China is say 10 to 1 today, how do you see that? If you know the average American lives 10 times better than the average Chinese, how do you see that ratio? in 10 years or 20 years' time? Well, first of all, I question that the average American lives 10 times better than the Chinese, because I, I looking at the food they eat, I already <laughs> have to almost uh, throw out. But uh, that aside, of course, in general, we in the Western world, we have GDP per capita of, say, 35,000 US dollar. But the cost of living is, of course, very high. I mean, i just give you an example. My gardener, in Chiang Mai, in the north of Thailand. He works for me every day. He also comes on Sundays, and he doesn't have really times. He comes at 8 in the morning, and if I still need him at 7.30, 8 in the evening, he's still there. I pay him 150 US a month. Then he gets a bonus at the year end of, say, maybe 500 US dollar. But he's a person that is there all the time. Now, 150 US a month is very little. Nobody could live by that in New York or in London. But in Chiang Mai, he can live a decent life. He has a small house. He has a small motorcycle. 
he eats decent food because you can eat a perfect good meal for say one US dollar mm -hmm. and so you know we have huge differences in the price level is the same in the US if you go to Tennessee the price level is also different than it is in say New York or if you go here in England from London to say the the northern part of England and the price level also drops very significantly and so it's difficult to make comparisons but in general all I can tell you I moved to Hong Kong in 1973 when I came Taiwan South Korea were very very poor countries as well as Singapore was like a dump at that time today Singapore is the richest country in the world and you see that the standards of living of people has over the last 30 years improved very dramatically in these countries whereas in Switzerland I go there back a few times a year I don't see any meaningful improvement in the standards of living there's n the, the only two things I can find in the world that are cheap at the moment is uh, Hong Kong and Berlin real estate comparatively cheap well I mean Hong Kong real estate the top end is very expensive and Berlin, we've been looking at buying in Berlin for a long time. It's, uh, it, for an individual, it's not particularly attractive because of very high tax rates in Germany. And what also happens is, say, you and I want to buy income-producing property in Berlin. Yes, you can do that, but the attractive properties, they're taken away by the hedge funds, then the hedge fund leverage is 10 to 1 and makes money on the leverage you understand I don't want to buy a property and leverage it 10 to 1 so I don't think that uh, Berlin is that cheap anymore I think there's a big opportunity in Turkey in real estate and also in countries like Bulgaria and so forth but I mean you have to look at the property rights also and you need a local partner or you have to be able to spend time yourself I suppose also properties in Libya would be attractive because you know, the, the expansion of Europe goes west, but it also goes south mm -hmm. across the Mediterranean. And budget airlines, cheap flights have changed the entire economic geography of homes. You can now have a home anywhere and fly for the weekend there instead of driving your car. The only thing that is expensive to go to your home is the train ticket from Paddington to Heathrow and back. <laughs> 29 pounds i couldn't believe it for that i can drive with a private driver from the bangkok airport to pattaya which is a two hours drive with a driver well there you go I, i'm gonna uh, send that little clip to uh, uh gordon brown or something yes but then someone like gordon brown tells me that inflation is two to three percent per annum but i mean looking just at the cost of this hotel and of costs in general here in London, I think London has had inflation of around 10% per annum. At least. At least. Well, Mark, it's been a real pleasure having you on, and uh, it's, it's been a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, my why, pleasure. Why don't you give out uh, your website address so that people can find out well, more about you. Well, it's com. Gloom, boom, doom com. <laughs> you love saying it, don't you? <laughs> Gloom, boom, doom com. <laughs> yes. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby.
Jinshan Gold Mines are developing one of the largest gold mines in China, and they're targeting mid 2007, that's this year, to graduate to gold producer. Their president is Jay Shimalauskas, and he's talking to me now from a park in Beijing. Hi, Jay. Dominic, hello. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Not at all. And you're sitting in a park. Uh, that's correct. I,、uh, I'm just making a, a move to Beijing with my family、uh, in the next、uh, three weeks. So I've just sourced a nice apartment overlooking a park, and I'm sitting in the park looking at all the koi swimming in front of me now. Beautiful. <laughs> I thought you might、uh, might have thought there was a prospective gold mine there or something. <laughs> well,、uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because China, of course, is very prospective for gold mines. The fourth largest gold producer in the world. So this is, of course, why we have our strategy for for growth in China, and it's going to start from our first gold mine, which starts production,、uh, as you mentioned,、uh, the middle of this year. Why don't you give us a, a brief background about the history of Jinshan, how you came about, and what you're doing now? Well, Jinshan's been in China for about、uh, five years.、Uh, I joined the company <coughs> about four years ago, and over that period of time, we've、uh, advanced、uh, our key project, which is the Chungshan Hao. 217 property uh, through uh, various feasibility studies and、uh, exploration drilling,、uh, and now we are at the stage of commercial construction、uh, with commercial production starting、uh, in around June, July of this year, with、uh, expected output of about 120,000 ounces per year. That's great. There's not many exploration companies that make it to production. No, I mean,、uh, you know, the statistics will tell you that one in a thousand、uh, exploration properties becomes a mine. So I guess you could say that we are、uh, one of those、uh, one in a thousand companies at this stage of our development. Okay, and、uh, why don't you tell us about the management, who they are, and a bit about their track record? Well, the management team,、uh, uh, starting with myself,、uh, I've been、uh, involved with、uh, the development of this this company over the last four years. And prior to that, I worked uh, uh, in the engineering field uh, of mining、uh, as a geotechnical engineer,、uh, and I've also worked、uh, in operations with.、Uh, With some senior companies in in,、uh, in、um, the Pacific region,、uh, working on one of the largest gold mines、uh, in Papua New Guinea.、Uh, our vice presidents, we've got、uh, three vice presidents now. Corporate development is、uh, run by Roger Walsh,、uh, 25 years of experience in the industry, building companies.、Uh, XD Jiang,、uh, Xiao Dong Jiang, I should say, it's a Chinese name,、uh, is our vice president of business development, and、uh, XD. Uh, is a Chinese national living in Canada,、uh, moved to Canada about 15 years ago, and spent、uh, his、uh, the last 15 years of his career basically working with senior companies around the world.、Uh, now he sees the opportunity to come back to China, take this experience with local Chinese knowledge、uh, of a the geological resources, but also、uh, with the ability to understand how to operate in China. And so he brings that、uh, that skill set、uh, to Jinshan. Uh, Keith Patterson, our vice president of exploration,、uh, is putting together our generative strategy、uh, for China, and、uh, our CEO, CFO,、uh, is Willie Lee, who's got another 20 years of experience、uh, in the industry. So,、uh, in summary, we've got a very experienced management team、uh, that knows how to build、uh, gold mines、uh, in China.、Uh, actually, I should also mention Cal McKee, who is our chief operating officer,、uh, who came from Uzbekistan, where he was working on one of the largest gold mines in the world, Murintel. Um, so we've got a, a team of,、uh, of executives that know how to build gold mines, but more importantly,、uh, see the opportunity to build a company here in China. Jay, you clearly have a record of delivering on promises. The fact that you're going into production this year demonstrates that. 
Um, you're hoping to produce 120,000 ounces from the Chang Shanhao project a year. What do you see, uh, uh, what's the mine life going to be? Well, the current mine life, our feasibility calls for, uh, on average, about 100, it's actually 117,000 ounces a year for the first uh, nine years of, uh, of, of uh, production. Uh, that's based off of a resource of approximately 2 million ounces uh, in the measured and indicated category. Uh, Jinshan has another 1 million ounces in the measured and indicated category that has yet to be scheduled into the mine plan. So uh, of the total of 3 million ounces uh, of measured and indicated uh, resources, we're only uh, considering 2 million for this, this mine plan. So what that means is that with the additional uh, million ounces, uh, we will likely schedule that uh, to increase the longevity of the mine by five years, or uh, what we are looking at now is increasing throughput. Uh, which would take the mine from, say, 120,000 ounces a year to 180,000 ounces a year. And this would require some additional permitting and infrastructure uh, development. Our feasibility study calls for about uh, $253 uh, per ounce. That study was done in April of 2006. Uh, since then, cyanide has gone up uh, in price. So I think uh, it's going to come in around uh, $260 uh, when it's all said and done. I know China, China benefits from great infrastructure. How is things like the power, the water, the roads, uh, the mine? Is that all okay? Well, uh, we've got, uh, you know, we're, we're located about three hours away from what I consider to be one of the most industrial uh, cities in China uh, for mining. Uh, this is where you can purchase Terex mining trucks uh, of all sizes. Uh, we happen to have 50-ton trucks, brand-new trucks that have arrived on site uh, last month. Uh, with uh, brand-new excavators uh, um, sourced and built uh, in Inner Mongolia, in China. Um, and so from that standpoint, uh, you know, on the supply side, we've got an uh, industrial city that can supply most of the reagents, uh, equipment, uh, and other uh, infrastructure uh, sort of supply requirements that we have for the project. In terms of infrastructure, we are located uh, near a brand-new power line, which was just commissioned... Uh, uh, in the last few months, uh, and a new power source uh, to our mine is just being commissioned uh, as we speak. Uh, we are developing uh, new water sources. There's a river that runs uh, about five kilometers from the property. Uh, and in terms of uh, um, the lay of the land, uh, access uh, is, is, is as good as you can get. It's a low-lying, uh, flat-lying uh, region, elevation of about 1,500 meters. So we've been very fortunate to have, uh, you know, good infrastructure uh, uh, to develop this project. And uh, what's your market cap? Our market capitalization today uh, would take us over about 300 million U.S. dollars. And how many shares are there outstanding? And are there any warrants and options? Yeah, we've got about 140 million shares outstanding, uh, fully diluted. That takes us up to about 170 million uh, shares. Uh, the additional 30 million shares consist primarily of warrants that were done uh, during three financings we did over the last year. And those warrants are priced at anywhere from $0.70 cents, uh, to $1.45 to $1.60. Our current share price today is about $2.45. Uh, that's from a high of about two sixty-five and a low of $0.88 cents over the last year. So uh, the warrants are all in the money, um, which will bring, uh, uh, I'd have to do the math on that, but uh, call it about uh, $15 million into the Treasury um, of additional sources of, of cash over the next uh, year and a half. And, I mean, how much cash do you have in the bank? Do you need to raise any more? No, we're, we're financed uh, to development. We just did a $30 million note facility uh, in December, um, which uh, 
uh, takes care of the capital cost uh, to start the mine up. Uh, and our current cash position today is about uh, just north of $20 million. I think about $23 million uh, in the Treasury. Uh, and we've got another two months of capital expenditures uh, to, to, to bring the project into production. It's very exciting, and uh, your, your share price has been, well, your performance uh, in terms of share price has been um, stellar. Um, why don't you tell us, Jay, about uh, your future goals for the company? Well, the future goals, now that we can see our first mine coming online, of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, China is very uh, prospective for, for uh, other gold uh, properties. We see the opportunity uh, for consolidation here uh, in China. Uh, over the next uh, few months, you'll start to see some news uh, out of our one of our drilling uh, programs, which is Daddy and Go. Uh, we started a 5,000-meter drilling campaign there uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and... Um, uh, and then on the property itself, we started a drilling campaign as well in, in order to increase the, the resource size. So what we've uh, what we've got over the next year is a couple of drilling campaigns that will increase our that will hopefully increase our, our resource base. Uh, but our generative projects in Xinjiang uh, and other parts of China will really add sort of the future value uh, for the company, which is uh, two years down the road. Uh, you know, we're getting starting to get this this additional exposure from you know companies like yourself. Uh, and it's really putting us uh, above the radar screen now uh, in terms of uh, where we go next with the company. And, um, and I just see many, many more opportunities opening up now as we, uh, as we deliver on our first mine. And, uh, and, you know, things are really starting to open up, uh, you know, on, 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 the, you know, on the foreign side, but also uh, in China as well. So you, you, you might have uh, projects abroad, uh, when I say abroad, outside of China. Well, you know, I, I, say, I say opening up in terms of other, other uh, international companies that are interested in, in doing deals uh, and, and pursuing things in China. And I guess what I'm really coming down to is it comes down to uh, investment funding. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the past we've had, uh, well, you're at the PDAC, but, um, you know, there's a lot of investment dollars uh, in the world right now, uh, in, in particular for resource uh, companies. And so... In the past, we've attracted, you know, some investors uh, that can see the, you know, the benefit uh, of, uh, you know, of, of, of investing in China or the opportunity there as a first mover. And what we're starting to see is a broader range of investors, you know, some of the, the major institutions and funds uh, looking at ways to uh, get exposure to China. And so uh, what better way to get exposure to China and resources but through a company that can demonstrate that they can, you know, uh, execute in China, yeah. right? So, so this is what this is where we see uh, things going in, in the future. Whereas in the past, uh, you know, I was looking at uh, smaller, smaller deals. Uh, we can start to look at some some bigger things as we go forward because we've got the financial support now. And why don't you just outline to us, Jay, the pros and cons of operating in China? Well, I guess uh, uh, the, the pro would be uh, the the opportunity here now in terms of being uh, a major gold producer. Uh, we feel that we've got a leadership advantage with an operating mine uh, in China. Uh, we've got a competitive advantage with, with an operating mine uh, in China. And based on the people that we have on the ground, we feel that we have a tremendous uh, competitive advantage uh, uh, against other uh, international com- companies coming into China. And I feel that we're on an equal playing field with uh, some of the domestic companies operating in China, although I guess our, our competitive advantage uh, there would be the ability to raise large sums of money to capitalize on these projects uh, and build them to a scale that uh, is not uh, is not uh, uh, you know done uh, in China. The, the the cons of working in China is that 
you need to be persistent. Uh, you need to, uh, you know, maintain uh, sort of a methodical approach. Uh, and you just need to be able to take time to, uh, you know, go through uh, the regulatory environment here uh, and uh, and not be discouraged by uh, setbacks and, and pushbacks. And, you know, we've demonstrated this over the last four years, uh, being able to take a project from very much an exploration property uh, into a production property over that time frame. So, you know, we, we believe that there's, uh, there's, there's uh, um, uh, that uh, China, the mining-friendly uh, environment, uh, the provinces that we're working in, and uh, that there's tremendous opportunities for growth. Jay, it's been fascinating talking to you. The Jinshan story really is a great one. Um, as we close, why don't you give out uh, your website address so people can find out more about you and also your ticker symbol. So the ticker symbol is J-I-N, Jin, which means gold, and we trade the gold in Putanghua, uh, which uh, we trade on the TSX uh, Senior Board. And our website is www.jinshanmines.com, and all of our information uh, is there. Jay Shimalauskas, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Dominic. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com. Well, when Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, was with me last, we made a call that was simply phenomenal. We found Martin Armstrong's 8.64-year cycle in which he identified a turning point in the markets on February 26th. And sure enough, as the markets opened on February 27th, they crashed and Michael Hampton was buying puts. Michael is with me now. And, Michael, when I was talking to Dr. Farber earlier on he was concerned about the money supply growth or as he calls it printing money in the US and the UK you think there might be a bit of a credit crunch coming well yeah this is a cyclical phenomenon I think you know if you look back through history you'll find that there are periods of excessive money printing uh, which eventually lead to uh, inflation I mean probably you've quickly see some asset of inflation and it spreads into inflation in the general economy and that becomes a problem so the monetary authorities are then uh, forced to tighten credit and uh, that happens uh, by way of higher interest rates and it happens by way of more restrictive credit. Now I think we're coming into a period where uh, the easy money and cheap money that we've been seeing for quite a few years is coming to an end. And uh, people who listen to this broadcast, I invite them to uh, come on to GEI, to Global Energy and Global Edge Investors, and check out a thread which I, which I will set up, which shows a 10-year bond chart uh, going back uh, at least 10 years. And we can see that interest rates have come down uh, from 8% to recent levels, around 4.5%. And indeed, for several years, rates have been fairly tame in a narrow range of, you know, between three and a half and four, four and a half percent, basically. And uh, that's allowed this huge uh, waves of liquidity to rush around the world and push up stock markets, property markets, uh, gold prices, commodities, and indeed now, finally, inflation. And the markets uh, like this, but the Fed and uh, the Bank of England and other monetary uh, authorities 
are now in a position where they're going to begin to restrict credit. And I think around the world you'll find going from Japan to China to the U.S. and maybe eventually to the U.K., um, rates are being raised. And um, now the, the effect of that is that, of course, it makes borrowing more expensive, but it also, um, these higher rates, uh, they cause, you know, excesses that have been built into the system to reveal themselves. So we're actually getting a number of problems with the mortgage market in the U.S. I think everybody who listens to this broadcast would have heard of the subprime crisis that's in the, in the States. And that now looks to be spreading out um, and affecting not only those institutions that were known as subprime lenders, but other institutions as well. I think people can look at stocks like Countrywide Financial, symbol CFC, Fannie Mae, symbol FNM, and Freddie Mac, symbol FRE. And these are the major mortgage lenders in the U.S., and their chart patterns are now looking fairly bearish and fairly scary. And as these charts fall, I think it's a sign that the market is beginning to realize that it's going to be harder to get money for, for mortgages in, in the U.S., and this tightness on money will inevitably have some impact, and perhaps a very serious impact, on housing prices in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I think this is a global issue, which will spread to all markets. And uh, within the next few months, we're going to be seeing credit is much harder to get, and interest rates are higher. And uh, that's going to cause a lot of rotten fruit to fall off the trees. So uh, that's the happy scenario I'm looking forward to for the next uh, few now, months. Now, just explain um, how interest rates work. The Bank of England or the Fed or whoever, whichever uh, is the applicable bank sets the interest rate, but they don't set the interest rates on the long-term bond. That is the market that determines that. Am I right? Well, you have a very good point there um, because um, – I think, you know, if things get bad enough, if, if the markets drop, as I was suggesting, um, to new lows below 1360, uh, you know, the Fed may be in a position uh, where they, they, they see that uh, market move and they also see increasing problems in the mortgage lending sector in the U.S. and they decide to uh, lower short-term rates. Um, and uh, I think the markets would take that as a bullish sign and perhaps jump quite a bit when that happens. You'll see a rally in the markets. Um, but the, the real thing to watch, if you know, if we do see a cut in short-term rates, is how the bond market reacts. Because short-term rates are well within the control of the Fed, but uh, it's not the Fed that controls the long-term rates. The long-term rates are controlled by the market. It's the appetite of people who buy U.S. bonds uh, that determines the interest rates on those bonds. And uh, the main buyers of those bonds have been people like the Japanese and Chinese. Uh, but they've announced that uh, they're going to be buying, they're going to be putting less of their reserves into, into dollar assets, and that includes dollar bonds. And uh, um, so we may actually see long-term rates, which are now around uh, – um, around 4.5%, uh, roughly, we're, we're going to see those rates move up uh, perhaps quite, quite dramatically. And the, the Chinese and the Japanese have actually announced that it is not their intention, it's their intention not to buy more bonds. 
Well, that wouldn't be quite accurate. I think what they've actually said is that, um, that they're going to try to achieve two things, which I think is virtually impossible, but they're going to try and diversify their assets away from dollars. And I think what that means is uh, they're going to slow dramatically their purchases of, of U.S. dollar assets like bonds and, and uh, debt instruments issued by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And uh, they're going to be buying perhaps um, bonds issued by, by other governments. Um, so th on one hand, they're going to be buying less. On the other hand, um, they've announced that they don't want to disrupt the markets. So um, I don't know how they're going to manage to buy less and, and, and you know, not disrupt the markets. But um, it's been their stated intention that they would like to do this in a way that doesn't disrupt the markets. So... I presume that means that some central bank from, from Mars or Jupiter or some other planet is going to have to come into the bond market and start buying up the bonds that the Chinese and Japanese have stopped buying. If people stop buying the bonds, what's going to happen? Well, um, interest rates will go up. And then, so if you've got the, government, the Fed setting very low interest rates uh, or trying to lower interest rates and then you've got the interest rate on the long-term bonds going up, then what happens? Well, right now we have a phenomenon where the yield curve is pretty flat, where the short-term and long-term rates are the same. Uh, the kind of situation I'm talking about, we might see short-term rates drop, and then long-term rates would actually go up. And um, that, that situation um, would be uh, the bond market behaving in a way that it behaved some decades ago, um, and that was the day of the bond vigilante when um, the bond market was acting as a break on the inflationary uh, money printing intentions of the Fed. And it was sending messages to the Fed by, uh, by actually, you know, interest rates going, long-term interest rates going up. We may soon be in a situation where uh, the market interest rates are rising, the long-term rates are rising, when the Fed's trying to get the short-term rates down. And... Uh, that's uh, that, that's a, a very normally a very adverse type of market. It's a market that eventually uh, should lead to some pretty sharp falls in stocks, and maybe a false a sharp fall in the dollar as well. Um, Michael, you're a great uh, technical analyst. You you like a chart, and um, looking at the uh, long-term interest rate chart from a purely technical point of view, you think it's poised to break out to the upside. Is that right? Yes. Um, I'm looking at a chart now in front of me which uh, shows 10-year uh, interest rates, the TNX, going back to 1994. And uh, at the end of 1994, um, the long-term interest rates were 8%. Um, and uh, rates gradually drifted down and then fell sharply uh, after 9-11. As, as uh, many here will know, uh, we saw a big drop in short-term rates um, after 9-11. Long-term rates came down, too. Um, they got as low in the first half of 2003. They got as low as 3.1%, 3.1%. And now we're around about 4.7% presently. Um, but if you look at that chart, and you apply some of the moving averages to it that I like to use, um, you will see that the, uh, the, the interest rates have broken up above a trend line, a downtrend line, and are now forming a base to launch what looks like uh, a nice thrust upward towards 5%, 6%, and perhaps higher.
And um, I think if uh, the world and its wife is fleeing the U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar assets and uh, people are reluctant to buy bonds, the only way that, um, that the Fed is going to get, the government is going to, the U.S. government is going to get people to buy their bonds is by uh, offering higher interest rates on those bonds. So uh, they're going to be caught between a rock and a hard place where they're going to be trying to lower rates to get the economy moving again. And the market uh, may be signaling to them that uh, the market doesn't like that and then the market wants a higher interest rate for long-term treasury obligations. So the fundamentals and the technicals are both pointing towards higher rates. What are the effects of this going to be on the gold and the mining market, short-term and long-term? Um, well, I think generally uh, fears of inflation uh, reflect themselves in higher gold and precious metals prices and higher interest rates. So I think for a period of time we'll see those move in the same direction. Rates and gold will move up together. Long-term rates and gold will move up together. Um, and it's only if the, the rates are pushed up faster than the market uh, can dare expect and it breaks the inflationary psychology and, you know, resolves some of the fears about U.S. Uh, assets. Uh, it's only then that uh, the gold price would fall back. Uh, but I think that could, uh, we could see much higher gold prices, uh, you know, later this year and going into 2008 um, than we see today. Um, so it would only much higher interest rates would break this upcycle in gold, in my opinion. But um, so uh, when interest rates hit 15 or 20 percent, we sell all our gold and buy bonds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about the 15 percent, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the up cycle we're in now uh, in rates, which I think started back um, in 2003 or 2004. I wouldn't be surprised if that up cycle would take us up to at least 8 percent on the long rate within the next uh, three to five years. And from there, we'll see. We'll see what happens to the rest of the economy. We'll see what happens to the U.S. dollar. We'll see what happens to, uh, to uh, inflation rates. And in the shorter term, can we expect gold prices to correct a bit if uh, the overall, if, if we get this uh, credit crunch? Um, well, I mean, I, I actually think, uh, you know, and please give me freedom here to change my mind many times on this, but I think we... We could see gold and gold shares fall a little bit as the market slides into some kind of a May low. And then, you know, if the Fed at that point starts reducing short-term rates, the short-term rates that they control, um, at that point you may see gold really take off. And that could be a real exciting thing, exciting time for, for all the markets. I'm... I'm uh much less experienced in this game than you, Michael, but I've, I've been looking at uh, charts of the Huey uh, for the last um, uh, seven or eight years, trying to determine whether to sell in May and go away and come back on St. Ledger's Day. And um, obviously last year that was a, a brilliant way to play it because uh, the markets rose so dramatically in May and then um, last October was a brilliant buy point. Uh, but it doesn't happen like that every year. So in many ways, uh, if, if you're not sure, um, the way to play this is just to stay long. Stay long the, the mining shares? Uh, sorry, stay long gold, yeah. Um, 
if your perspective is long term, I think that's probably a good idea. If you're a short term trader, um, I, I I would like to raise it. I am raising a bit of cash right now. Um, I'm staying with most of my core holdings in precious metal stocks. Um, I don't actually hold much gold. Uh, I think I will at some stage in this market, but uh, I, I prefer to play the junior shares. I think we've probably seen gold outperform the shares a little bit, but if, if the general markets get hit with a slide in April, uh, if, if we see that, then uh, perhaps the gold mining shares will go down with it as well. But come July, come, come, come May, uh, if the Fed starts raising rates, we could see uh, the market rallying in May when, when you know, the old saying, sell in May and go away, would have you leaving. That might actually be an exciting time to be long the markets. And instead, this, may, this year, they, they may, it may be a year to sell in July and uh, go and fly because uh, <laughs> go and go, sell in July when, when, when markets fly, I, I think, is, is how I'd, I'd, uh, I'd put it. Okay, because I mean, you do look at it some years, and some years it, the 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 uh, correction has actually started in March and gone down to May, and then it's rallied from May, as you say. So, you know, there's no way of knowing for sure. Uh, well, that's true. Words were never spoken. I think uh, all of this is uh, speculation. Um, I change my view on the markets from day to day, and. Uh, I think everybody has to be prepared to uh, see something different than they expect develop. And uh, that's why uh, in a market like this, you need to have, uh, uh, you know, a certain amount of flexibility, and that means keeping some cash, and that's uh, what I'm planning to do. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I think what I'm going to do is uh, I've got uh, various core holdings which I shall leave, and uh, I've got uh, a smaller percentage of my portfolio, which is more, shall we say, fluid, that uh, sometimes is in cash and sometimes is in stocks. And I think this year it may be in cash, but we shall see. Mike, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much uh, for coming on to the show. And um, as we close, why don't you just uh, give out one more time the uh, website address for Global Edge. Yeah, thanks, Dominic. Um, it's globaledgeinvestors.com, and uh, I do uh, welcome people who listen to these broadcasts to come in and uh, have a look at some of the charts and perhaps give us a, the odd comment or two. Thank you. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.